Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, as always, we're grateful for another opportunity to be in your house. This house on earth, while we long to be in your house in heaven. And Lord, the older I get, uh, the more I look forward to that house. Praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have been building a place for us um, ever since you left this world. You promised that in your Father's house are many rooms, and we look forward to moving into your rooms. Until then, Father, we long to be faithful to you. We long to be effective at battling temptation and subduing sin in our lives. And we know that we tend to be proud where you want us to have humility. We know, Father, that we tend to be self-centered when you want us to be others-centered. You know that we tend to hoard the gospel when you have called us to share the gospel. You know, Father, that we tend to fight when we should be at peace with one another. And even with the Spirit of God, Lord, we battle these things. And yet you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to take that more seriously. Teach us this morning, Father, and I pray that you would protect us from error. There, there are ways to fall off the beam of truth here in multiple directions that would lead us into error. And, and Father, I want to be sensitive to that. Pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this teaching and uh, that you would change us. Pray that your theology would have its desired effect, that it would lead us into doxology, that is worship, and it would also lead us deep into sanctifying grace. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is part 2 of a message that I knew I wouldn't be able to finish last week. I did think I would be able to get past uh, point number one, but did not. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Um, in my mind, in the week leading up to last week's message, I knew that this is a controversial issue in some quarters and in popular Christianity these days. And so I wanted to spend the majority of that message addressing that and showing you biblically why I land where I land. Namely, that sanctification requires effort, requires effort. Our sanctification is not ultimately dependent upon our effort, but it does require effort. And this is one of those texts that forces you to wrestle with the issue of sanctification. So today I want to pick up where we left off last week in our discussion of how Christians grow into the likeness of Christ. Theologians refer to this doctrine as the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. But it really, it's okay if you simply want to call it the Bible's teaching on Christian growth and maturity, because that's what this is about. Uh, this is not, however, a topical sermon. There is certainly a topic here, but if you're new with us, you need to understand that we actually work through books of the Bible verse by verse, and right now we are working through the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So if you would stand with me for just a minute out of respect for the Word of God, and we will read this text. And I'm going to actually begin in verse 3, just to give us a lead-in to verses 12 and 13. Follow along with me, Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. The Apostle Paul's writing here to the church in Philippi, and he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess (laughs) in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. And may I focus on one translation of the text at a time. Um, I'm looking at the words and my mind is, is rebelling against what it sees because I've memorized this in King James and NAS and it's such a rich text, we should all memorize it. Now the question you remember last week is still relevant. How is your spiritual growth? How's it going for you? How is your spiritual growth? Have you made progress in your walk with the Lord in the past year? Is there evidence of change? Are you more loving? Are you more patient? Are you less snappy toward other people? Are you more self-disciplined? Are you more kind? Do you hate your sin more? Are you Are you growing in your ability to defeat temptation, to subdue it, what Paul would call killing it, treating it as if It has no power over you because it does not unless you allow it. And Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi toward this kind of change. And that brings us to the four attitudes that should characterize our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of spiritual maturity. How should we strive for this spiritual growth? And as we saw last week, there are four attitudes. We should strive for spiritual growth obediently, rigorously, reverently, and optimistically. And we discussed the first of these attitudes last time, namely that we should strive for spiritual growth obediently. This is an obedience issue. It's, it's not just get up and do what you feel. It's live every day as Jesus lived in obedience to his Father. And we talked about this last week, but we see here in verse 12 where Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And so just as Jesus obeyed the Father by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, so you too humble yourselves in obedience. Listen, it's going to have to be an act of obedience because your flesh automatically forces you upward, pushes you upward. It's always calling you to make more of yourself and less of other people and less of God. It's going to have to be an act of obedience. It's going to have to be an act of your will. 
And so we should obey humbly the word of the Father, just as Jesus obeyed the will of the Father by becoming the incarnate Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And not only that, but we should be obedient even when no one is watching Look, or looking over your shoulder. Paul couldn't always be with them all the time. In fact, as we know, geographically, he was 800 miles away. He couldn't be with them, and so he makes this statement that he's no longer with them, but he is proud of them because even though they were, they were obedient when he was with them, that was wonderful, and now he hears they're even obedient when he's away. He wasn't there to motivate them. But in his mind, that was okay because the Spirit of God was indwelling them. And if you know Christ, the Spirit of God is indwelling you. You don't need external motivation. It is helpful. It is helpful. Husbands should help their wives. Wives should help their husbands. Friends should help friends. You should help your children. It is helpful. But if you are by yourself, as, as much of the time you are, Where's the motivation come from? Paul's concern is it better not only come from the outside. It better not come from exclusively from the people who are with you. Rather, more importantly, the motivation could, should come from the one who is within you, namely the Holy Spirit. And so we should strive for spiritual growth obediently. And I spent a lot of time on that last week. And so let's move on to the next one. We should strive for spiritual growth rigorously. Now, this is where we pick up from last week. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, and here we go, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, I think it's imperative this morning that we observe the fact that Paul does not say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work on your salvation. He doesn't say work up your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Work it out. And what does the term work out mean? Well, in the Greek it's only one word. In the English it's two. It's only one word, and that word means, listen carefully, work out means to effect or to produce. And remember what the object is, salvation. Effect your salvation, produce your salvation. Or another term is cause. Cause your salvation. Oh, beloved, we look at the, the definition of this term and we are on dangerous ground. If you fall off the beam the wrong direction, you fall into heresy instantly. And so when you come to a passage like this, You've got to be so, so very careful. One false move, and, and you come under God's frown at the very least. This is why we have to distinguish between the different categories of salvation. We talked about this extensively last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but we don't cause, we don't cause our justification. We don't cause our glorification. And I said last week, there are three subcategories of the broader topic of salvation. And they come mostly from the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Under the larger, broader umbrella of salvation, you have three major doctrines. 
They are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And it's obvious, I think, that what he's referring to is not salvation in the broad sense or even in the narrow sense of your eternal life, but in this in-between sense where he is talking about salvation. It has to be salvation. Because in justification, you make no contribution. Even your faith is a response to what God has done. And in your glorification, you make no contribution. You just one day paint in your house, and poof, you disappear, you're in the kingdom. And God glorifies you. I don't know how all that's going to happen. But I know this, it's, it's not anything that we do. But in sanctification, by the mercy of God, and somewhat mysterious providence of God, he is ordained that we participate in our sanctification. Not, that so, not so that we get the glory, but I would suggest to you so that we get the joy of being a part of what God is doing in our lives. And so in this sense, we cause or we effect or we bring about. We might say, Paul is calling us to see to it that our salvation is fruitful by diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit who produces such fruit. How do we do that? Well, we do it as we fulfill our spiritual duties to Christ from the heart. Or, to say it another way, we do it as our love for Christ and our faith in Christ finds expression in obedient living, in obedience to him. Now I know the term obedience has fallen out of fashion in the Christian life. That's piety. That's legalism. It's not legalism. And as I said last week, it can't be legalism. Because in this very text, while he's calling us to obey, he just came off of saying that Jesus, the reason that he came and humbled himself, was out of obedience. And we infer that it was obedience to the Father. And of course, we know from other texts that that's true. Sanctification, here is, I believe what Paul is saying. Sanctification requires your work. It requires work. Paul's point is we cannot be passive about our growth in Christ and expect to make progress. It requires energy. In fact, that's a key word here. It's a Greek word from which we get energy. It requires initiative. It requires resolve. Listen, God is not going to obey for you. He's not going to obey for you. If you obey, it will be because... You have decided to obey. You have chosen to obey. Now, I want you to notice some important facts about the verb work out here in the Greek. First of all, it's in the present tense, which means we do it all the time. Uh, how many of you are living in the present tense? Uh, how about now? Are you still living in the present tense? You get it? I mean, so all the time, every day, every minute, we don't get to take a vacation from sanctification. We don't get to take a sabbatical from sanctification. And keep in mind here that according to the Apostle John, his commands are not burdensome. Sanctification is not burdensome to the Christian. We never get to take a break. 
And yet this is where joy is found. And so it's a present tense. It's also middle voice. And in, in the language, it, it, this is a reflect, reflexive verb. And, and all you need to know about that is, is that it's something that I must do for myself. It's not something that another person is doing for me. My wife can't do my sanctification for me. And the Holy Spirit won't do my sanctification for me. I must do what he calls me to do for myself. I must choose to do it. And notice, too, that it's an Im in the imperative mood, which all of this, uh, you know, this, um, uh, this language specification may seem rather geeky to you, but this is so important. Listen, we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Word of God. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God, which means we don't merely believe that all the thoughts are directly inspired from God. We believe that every tense voice and mood is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the imperative mood. Now, imperative, you know from your grammar classes, an imperative is a command. It's a command. It's something that's present tense, means we do it all the time. It's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. And it's reflexive, means we do it for ourselves. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting a theology here. I, all I'm doing at this point is translating the words and telling you what they mean. And commentator William Hendrickson, and by the way, if you, if you want a great commentary series, uh, always go for the guys who are dead because they can't <laughs> blow it anymore. And William Hendrickson, he's Presbyterian, and there are going to be some things that we don't always agree with him on, but talk about thorough. Uh, whenever I'm in a fix and I can't quite figure out the meaning of a text, I'll go to Hendrickson, and, and nine times out of ten, he's so helpful. William, uh, William Hendrickson says this on this same passage, this same issue. Paul, Paul has in mind, Hendrickson writes, Paul has in mind continuous, sustained, strenuous, effort. That's what it means to work out. This part of your salvation, which we call sanctification. Now this is a command to maintain a continuous sustained effort toward Christ-likeness. It's a call to diligently apply all the means of grace supplied by the Spirit of God. It's a command to take seriously the need to read and meditate on the Word of God. Are you reading and meditating on Scripture? It's a call to take seriously the command to pray. It's not just a command, it's an invitation. Come, knock, seek. The door will be open to you. Your prayers will be answered. And, and you know there are some things, the scriptures teach, there are some things that God will not do apart from prayer. He intends to not do them apart from prayer. It's a command to take seriously the need to worship God in the community of his church. It's a command to tell unbelievers of the salvation that Christ has purchased for them. It's a command to love our wives and to train our children to love Jesus. It's a command to serve and to help and to forgive and to seek forgiveness. And preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is all of these graces, all of these commands. It's a command to guard your purity and maintain your integrity. And it's a command to battle against sin and temptation which so easily besets us. You have to do it. 
The Holy Spirit's not going to do it for you. You will do it with him, as we're going to see in a minute. And he will empower you to do it. But you must work it out. You see, beloved, God has provided in salvation all that we need to successfully battle sin in our lives. Let's just take one sliver of Christianity. It's a big sliver, maybe a big chunk of, I don't know about your sanctification, my, a big chunk of my sanctification is just battling temptation and sin. Now, reading the Bible, for me, is easier. Uh, even praying is easier. And temptation is difficult because it's tempting. It, it appeals to our desires. It appeals to what we already want. And John Piper is speaking about his own study on this passage and of his own warfare against temptation, wrote this. I saw afresh that the salvation that I was to work out was not only the large reality of total deliverance someday, but the concrete reality of salvation from anger, salvation from self-pity, salvation from blaming, salvation from sullenness. This verse takes on a different ring when you say work out your salvation from, insert your own temptation. And for the Philippians, it was salvation from selfishness and conceit and pride. Perhaps for you, it's salvation from lust or a sinful kind of people-pleasing that makes you more interested in what other people think than in what Jesus thinks. Or perhaps it's materialism and wealth. Or maybe it's dishonesty or laziness. Whatever the temptation and sin, the, the text exhorts us, work out your salvation, especially in those areas. Bring salvation to bear. Bring all that God has given you when you became a child of God. When you became a child of God, at that very moment, you were given resources to battle your temptation. And so work it out. Work out your salvation. Kill it. Kill that sin. Subdue your sin. Be specific about your temptation and sin. You know, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about here. For you who struggle with lust, and I picked this one because of the current condition of our society. For those of you who struggle so much with lust... This may mean coming up with a plan, like a plan you can find on the internet called the Anthem Plan. It's an acrostic, A-N-T-H-E-M, and, and here's, here's how it goes. A, avoid the sights and situations that bring temptation. N, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. T, turn your mind forcefully toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. I love that. Turn your mind forcefully. To Christ. If you're going to battle temptation, it doesn't matter what the temptation is. You will have to turn your mind to Christ forcefully. H, hold the promise of God in your mind until it pushes away other images or desires. E, enjoy the superior satisfaction of Christ and cultivate holy affections for God. M, and this is a critical one, move. Don't stay where you are. Move into useful activity and away from idleness and preferably into service for someone else. 
And you may, you know what, you may have to, you're going to do serious battle with a temptation you're experiencing at the moment. It may take you 20 to 30 minutes. You've got to bring the word of God to bear on, on this. Whatever that sin is. And I, I picked lust, but you could pick another, you know, a hundred other sins and other, other temptations. It could be alcoholism. It could be drugs. It could be anything. But you will not overcome it by being passive. You will drown in your sin. God won't do it for you. You must take the initiative by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation. Work on your sanctification. And by the way, that anthem plan is available on the internet. Just type in John Piper anthem and it'll come up with all the scriptures and a lot more material there. I just gave you the bare bones. And my point in all of that is just you've you, you got to have a, some kind of plan. What are, you, what are you most tempted by? Sit down with scripture or sit down with a, with a trusted friend who can point you to scriptures to help you with that temptation and bring God's promises to bear, bring God's warnings to bear, bring God's comforts to bear, bring the cross of Christ to bear, bring the joy and the consolation of Christ to bear. Learn how to do that in the moment. Now we could turn to Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul talks about the fiery darts that the enemy is, is lobbing at you. And he doesn't say, stand there and take it. He says, no, put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. And what are the, ar what are the pieces of the armor? Every single piece is an element of the gospel. What is the helmet? The helmet of salvation. salvation. What are the shoes? The shoes of preparation for the gospel. What, what is, the, what is the, uh, the breastplate? It's, it's faith. What is the belt? It's truth. You see what he's saying? Bring all of these things to bear to your battle. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to get wiped out. You're going to be defeated. Any soldier who goes into battle and he doesn't have a sword, which stands for what? The word of God. Bring the word of God against your temptation. That's what it means to work out your salvation. If your greatest struggle is entertainment, materialism, anger, something else, you'll need to come up with some kind of different plan than, than one for lust. Just find a way to bring God's word to bear on your temptation and sin. And don't hesitate to ask a brother or sister for help. Number three, we must strive and number two is for spiritual growth obediently, rigorously is number two. Number three is we must strive for spiritual growth reverently. Reverently. Paul says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now, some of you who have been Christians for years just maybe checked out in your mind because you have no idea what fear and trembling is about in the Christian life. I thought he rescued us from fear. Uh, there's a song on the radio, a Christian song, that uh, this says, uh, fear is your enemy. And I say, okay, I, I get that. At some point, that's true. If fear is keeping you from doing the will of God, then yes, it's your enemy. But if you're talking about the fear of God, there is a kind of fear that is not just your companion and friend. It will be your guide. It's the fear of the Lord. That's why in the Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because God is blood earnest about the way we live, not just what we believe. And listen, if you're not living it, you're not really believing it. Faith is an active thing. If it's not being exercised, it's not faith. You know, I can have, I can have faith in a rocket ship to Mars. I can believe with all my heart that that can happen. And if I don't get in the ship, nobody's going to invite me. I'm not exercising faith. I can say that God gives me the grace to overcome every temptation. But if I'm not actively engaging and battling that temptation, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. God is blood earnest about the way that we live. He created us in his image specifically to show the world what God is like and what his gospel is like. And the evangelical American community knows very little anymore about the fear of the Lord and the reverence for his deity. And I believe that the reason that R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, instantly became a bestseller in the church and is to this day Ligonier Ministries' bestseller after all of these decades is because the church knows intuitively that we should fear the Lord. We like happy, slappy worship services with man-exalting sermons designed to make us feel good about ourselves. But beloved, one day we will see him face to face. And I believe on that day we will look back with disappointment as we discover how foolish, how self-centered, how shallow our love for Christ, how weak our devotion to him, how tepid our concern for the lost, and how unengaged we were in the battle. God is not impressed with our weak, passive, shallow commitment, me-centered commitment to Christ. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 66 too. You want to impress God? Here's what Isaiah, the prophet, said by the Holy Spirit. But this is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in heart and who, what? Trembles at my word. What we need in the American church is a lot less laughter and a hundred thousand megadoses of the fear of the Lord. Not servile fear. Not fear that he's going to cut us loose and we're going to lose our salvation, but a reverent, sober fear that reflects an apprehension of his awesome holiness. And you know I don't use the word awesome <laughs> hardly ever unless I'm speaking of the glory of God or something that he has done. But his holiness is an awesome holiness. And that would be a sufficient motivation to take sin seriously, don't you think? That'd be sufficient motivation to pursue the graces of Christ with unflagging ambition and undaunted zeal. And this brings us to the last point. We must strive for spiritual growth obediently, rigorously, reverently, and, and here's the wonderful part. Not that that last one wasn't wonderful, but we must strive for spiritual growth expectantly. I think this is why Paul, uh, uh, John could say his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. 
He hasn't piled all of this on us and expect us to bear the load all by ourselves. It's not a load. It's not a heavy load. I know that because Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. That is, become my disciple. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is why. Look at verse 13. For, here's the explanation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you see the basis of our fear and trembling. Listen, okay, everybody, every eye up here for a minute. The basis of the fear and trembling is not threat. It's gift. It's gift. It's what God has given to us. We tremble because it's such an awesome thing to realize that Almighty God, the Almighty Creator of the universe, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Sustainer of all things, and our eternal hope has actually taken up residence in me. Here is the great mystery of salvation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's the hope of your sanctification. And it's the only hope of justification that the Holy Spirit would move in to your heart. He gives us the will. He gives us the power. This is why he indwells us. He indwells us to give us the very things we so desperately need and won't have without him. He gives us the will and he empowers the work that he requires. If you're a child of God today, you're, you shouldn't be offended by this passage. This shouldn't rock your boat. This shouldn't feel like a burden to you. It shouldn't overwhelm you unless you're talking about being overwhelmed with joy. Yes, do you, do you, have, to, do you have to cut things, some things out of your life? So that you can pursue sanctification the way Paul is talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? You cut a lot of things out of your life when you got married. Right, men? A lot of girls that you knew. And when you got married, you cut them all out of your life. Except one. Right? And you ladies too. And some of you are about ready to get married. And you better cut everything, everybody else out of your life. Including your parents. To some degree. Because in order to say yes to the most important things, you have to say no to the lesser things. And so we do. And we find, as we do, there is more joy. The commands of God are not burdensome to us because Christ is in us. Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says this early on in the Philippians, he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? To complete it. He's gonna be, he is going to complete it. You have to participate in it, but he is going to complete it. And you know what that means? While you get the joy of laboring beside the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Christ, he gets all the glory. He always gets all the glory. Because no matter what it is, whether it's him doing it by himself or whether it's him doing it through me, all of it is a gift. It's all a gift. 
and is a gift for his glory and our joy. This is the fulfillment, by the way, of Jesus' promise in John 14. In John 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. Okay, he's about to leave them. John 14 is the end of, kind of toward the end of the book of John. He's about to get crucified. It's in this um, discourse at the end. And he says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him, knows, uh, it never, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and shall be what? In you. Prepositions are important here. Amen. He, is with, he was with them before Jesus' resurrection. Now he is in them. And if you were one of his, this promise of the Spirit is yours. You already have him. And because you already have him, you have all the help. You have all the help. Now, some of you may have a translation that refers to the Holy Spirit as comforter. And that would be a good translation. Back in, in, um, in 1611, the year 1611, uh, the Latin word comfort is quite different than our word comfort. When you think comfort, some of you are thinking right now about can't wait to get home and to my napping couch or bed and get me some comfort. Um, in Latin, you got kind of two things going here. Com or cum means with, and fort is forte. Forte means power. If you know anything about music, when Marsh is playing, she'll be praying quietly and the music will say um, forte or double forte means power or more power. Comfort used to mean with power. This Holy Spirit that, the, that Christ would ask the Father to send to you, to indwell you, will come to you to help with power. How much power? How much do you need? Must you need to beat that stubborn sin? You get it. You get it from Christ. You get it from his spirit. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, remembering that it is God who is at work in you. He's completing what he started. It is God who is at work in you, both to what? To will gives you the desire to obey. He gives you the desire to be pleasing to the Lord. He gives you the desire to engage in your sanctification when you're being tempted or when you just are wanting to read the word of God. Where did that desire come from? You received a new heart and the Holy Spirit keeps invigorating that heart. This is where it comes from. He gives you the will and he gives you the power, the work, the energy to do what he commands. Yes, we participate in our own sanctification, but we couldn't accomplish anything that produces growth in Christ if it weren't for the power of Christ igniting the will of Christ in our hearts. Remember St. Augustine. And uh, St. Augustine had a famous prayer. And some of you remember it, right? It goes like this. Lord, command what you will but give what you command. 
be understood. He knew where it came from. Everything, everything, everything that we receive comes to us from the Father in whom there is no shadow of turning. Everything is from him and through him and for him. To him be the glory forever. And so, why, do, why did Augustine pray, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command? It's simply this. He understood that God has promised it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how, how can you think that he would also not with him freely give you all things? Why would you think if he gave you the most magnificent gift God could ever give, why would you think that he would hold back a lesser gift? He won't if you trust him, if you obey him. And I think it's a Fanny Crosby song, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. <laughs> that sounds really trite and axiomatic, but it's good theology. When you're living in obedience to the Lord, you're not earning your salvation at all. You can never earn it by your works. But you can know the joy of pleasing him by the way you live, knowing, listen, if I'm pleasing him right now, God's working in me. God's work, that's what I rejoice about. Well, if I did something well, if I battled a temptation successfully, yes, I rejoice. Why? Because it's evidence God is alive in me. How can that be? Oh, beloved, do you see what a privilege it is to belong to such a Savior and to own such a salvation? So work it out. Work out your salvation, that sanctification part of your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling to the glory of God and your own temporal and then eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this word this morning, and I pray, Lord, that I represented you well here today. If not, Lord, I pray that you would correct me and help me to understand better. But, oh, Lord, this, this drives me, this encourages me, and though I, I often fail to practice this, yet, Lord, you are so faithful to call me back and to empower me afresh, and empower me anew, and to do it without condemnation. You know what it's like. Lord Jesus, you know what it's like to live in a world. You were tempted in every way that I have ever been tempted. You know what it's like. And so you represent us before the Father. And you remind the Father, as if he could ever forget, that you died for us. Well, Father, may we never think, may we never think that because we have been justified freely by your grace that our works and our sin don't matter. But may we always remember that because we are justified apart from works, our works really you know, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in that and that Jesus would be praised because of it. For we pray it in his glorious name. Amen.